0: Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. Prophetic ministry, in its bravest form, is the voice of divine confrontation raised against resistant world forces. And do not think for a moment that it is all fun. Don't cherish the thought that it is without cost or danger. God has called and still calls individuals and the church to confront societal and individual evil in the form of human rulers. And these confrontations are often the very hinges on which history swings. Hello, I'm Mark Rutland. Welcome to The Leader's Notebook. I'm continuing this series of teachings, which are based on my new book of Kings and Prophets. I so very much want you to have this book. I believe that it is timely and that it's important, and I I want you to have it, and I know that you're going to want others to have it. This is a great time to get this book, to get it to leaders that you care about, your pastor, teachers, leaders of every kind. And it's time for Christmas shopping. Uh, At the end of this podcast, the announcer is going to tell you how you can get as many copies as you need, and I want you to have this book. I want you to read this book and, and meditate, if you will, on what prophetic ministry means in this complicated epoch of human history in which we live. I don't know that we've ever lived through since the American Civil War, here in America at least. I don't know where you're listening to this podcast, but here in America at least, I'm not sure we've ever lived through a more polarized and contentious season of life since the American Civil War. What, what is prophetic ministry in times such as these? What, what does it have to say to us? I believe there have been four major crossroads in American history in which the church attempted to speak prophetically to the nation and its leaders. The first was the epic confrontation over the abolition of slavery. Though many Christians failed to make known the judgment of God on the institution of slavery, others spoke prophetically, many others spoke in His name and for His glory. Sometimes we forget that the church was the predominant voice that called for the abolition of this wicked uh, slave trade. Many claimed in Christ we cannot own human beings or deprive them of life and liberty. Most abolitionists were Christians, and many Christians were abolitionists. Uh, One of the more famous of these Christian abolitionists was Julia Ward Howe. To the tune of John Brown's body, she wrote what would become the battle hymn of the Union troops, we call it the battle hymn of the Republic, in America's great civil war, which was fought, irrespective of all the things that people say it wasn't really about slavery, it was about states' rights, et cetera, et cetera. It was about slavery. When you read the lyrics of this magnificent song, you are reading an incarnational prophetic statement. Ms. Howe said, I can see God in the watchfires of the Union Army. To paraphrase her, she said, When I look on the hillsides and see the Union campfires, I see the hand of God. Remember the words, He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. What she's saying is, in the marching boots of the Union Army, they're trampling out the bitter vintage, the bad wine that is stored up because of the centuries of, of slavery, the wrath of God. And now Sherman's army, for example, in his march from Atlanta to Savannah, which he just about burned Georgia to the ground, she said, that's God. For all the slavery and for all the evil that has been stored up year after year after year after year, for all the wickedness that has been done in the name of the economy of the South, the Union Army, she claimed, was the punishing hand of God. This must have been infuriating to her contemporaries in the South. Yet today, amazingly, not all that long after that civil war, the Battle Hymn of the Republic is sung frequently in Southern churches. We have moved beyond the prophetic battle over the abolition of slavery. Thanks be to God. The second major prophetic battle in American society, and one that continues to wage to this day, was against alcohol and drugs. Our nation attempted badly, unfortunately, to fix this crisis with prohibition in the early 20th century. This effort led to a doomed and misguided amendment to the Constitution, which solved nothing and actually energized organized crime. Still, The greatest and noblest part of this effort was that the church stood up in its prophetic might and declared it's wrong for people to drink themselves to death and condemn themselves and their families to destruction, and so they were attempting to make a prophetic statement against addiction to alcohol and its societal destruction people of God rose up, as they often do today, and proclaimed that addiction to alcohol and drugs is not of God and completely opposed it. This was a necessary battle. It was. It still is a godly battle. Prohibition, however, was a misguided and failed legal instrument. But a prophetic church cannot acquiesce to the horrors of alcoholism and drug addiction and those powerful forces that profit from both. A third major prophetic battle that raged in the United States was the battle to end the wickedness of segregation following the Civil War. After the nation abolished the institution of slavery, Jim Crow laws institutionalized the degradation of blacks. Many forget that the opposition to Jim Crow was largely a prophetic movement of the church, just as was to the opposition to slavery. I realize that not all churches rose up in righteous fury, not as many as should have, to be sure. In fact, many churches, unfortunately, supported these segregation laws. Yet Dr. Martin Luther King captured this moment in his heart-rending letters from Birmingham jail. He said flatly that this business of segregation was wrong, ungodly, and destructive. He boldly accused the white, evangelical, blood-washed, Bible-believing Christian preachers who refused to stand up and denounce segregation. And he was right to do this. He was speaking prophetically. This was a time of lynchings, but beyond the numbers, there was the daily nightmare, of the million petty customs and laws used to beat a race into humiliating submission. Even though prohibition failed as a legal solution, the backbone of segregation was broken legally. Though individual racism will never be stamped out this side of heaven, and that is a tragedy, the legal and financial systems of America are not what they were in the past, a barrier to an entire race. Thank God that boil has been lanced. And the laws that were passed to end Jim Crow were largely due to the prophetic voice of the Church. Finally, we are now embroiled in yet another, the fourth great moral battle facing the United States, yet another prophetic contest in which the Church has taken the lead. This is the battle against abortion. I'll tell you frankly that this battle should never have been necessary. It seems that anyone with a beating heart would know that crushing children in the womb, or in some cases, even killing them outside the womb just after birth, is an evil at an historic level. It is demonic, genocidal mania, a level of wickedness that has the effect of wiping out future generations and perverting an entire society. Yet we have had to fight this battle because not everyone is convinced, not in the world and not in American society, and not even in the church. Therefore, the prophetic church fights on, as it should. How do these four struggles relate to Moses as a prophet and his conflict with the king, Pharaoh? The conflict between Moses and Pharaoh was not specifically about the institution of slavery as a social evil. Slavery certainly is evil, but that was not at the heart of the conflict. It is likely that there were other slaves in Egypt's vast empire at the time, yet God did not order Egypt to end the practice of slavery. Moses' message was specific. Release the Hebrew slaves. The point is that this was not a generalized conflict between good and evil. This was about God's people, whom Pharaoh claimed as his own. The question was simple. It was this and nothing else. To whom did the Hebrews belong? God or Pharaoh? Moses never denounced slavery as an institution, nor did he rebuke Egypt for its idolatry. This was a grudge match about who had the right to choose the destiny of the Hebrew people. Pharaoh was not about to give up his authority easily. The Hebrews were his, he believed. He alone could choose where they lived or indeed which of them lived. He decided that they ate and lived and worked where he said. Pharaoh didn't just rule their wretched, purposeless lives. More importantly, he stood between them and their destiny as a people, as a nation, which had never before been a nation which had never been. The nation of Israel was actually born in slavery, if you will. They were his slaves, and their only destiny was to work their lives away for his personal enrichment and to die in the ghettos of Goshen. This was Pharaoh's claim. This was his intention. Yet according to Moses, the Hebrews were God's people, and God had a higher purpose and a better place for them. Their destiny was not Pharaoh's to decide, nor did it lie in the slime pits of Egypt. The Moses-Pharaoh clash was head-to-head, eyeball-to-eyeball, man-to-man, or at least man-to-man of God. This had nothing to do with cleansing the moral climate of Egypt. Remember that. This was about one simple question. Who owned the Hebrew people? Who got to make the big decisions about them? No compromise was possible. This was a bilateral, non-negotiable, win-lose conflict from which only one victor could remain. Pharaoh speaking for himself and Moses speaking for God. So the entire focus of Moses' ministry is to get the Hebrew people out of Egypt. The land that God gave their fathers awaited them. Remember that God always phrases his description of the promised land this way, the land that I gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, the land, Haaretz Israel. This is Hebrew for the land of Israel. Moses has one solitary task the deliverance of the Hebrew people. This was his ministry and it's why his ministry was so powerful. This is why it is so dramatic. And this is why the effect on Egypt was so devastating. By looking back at what happened to Germany at the end of World War II, a terrifying truth is revealed. In just a few brief days, More Allied bombs were dropped on Dresden, Germany, than were dropped on London during the entire Battle of London, during the entire Blitz. During all those months, month after month after month, Nazis bombed London. A stunning number of bombs were dropped, and there was horrible suffering. Yet, a greater number were dropped by the Allies on Dresden, on the city of Dresden, alone. It was a nightmare. And this was not all the suffering that Germany endured. When Russia invaded Berlin at about the same time, there were atrocities committed that are too vile for me to recount here. There were bombings, fires, death. Of course, it was horrible. But there was a very personal vengeance. Germany was feeling the agony at that time of day. The Russians wanted revenge for what the Germans had done in Russia. Why did all this occur? Why were there such horrors visited on the German people? I'll tell you exactly why. You touch the Jewish people, and you stick your finger in the eyeball of God, and he'll repay his debts. We should fear for any nation that touches the Jewish people. We should know that vengeance is going to come. That's what befell Egypt. Moses was liberating the Hebrew people. But when Pharaoh chose to resist God's command, he brought the most unimaginable horrors upon his own people. So it has always been with God's defense of the Jews and his defense of the church. It has always been and it always will be. What can we learn from all this? One, never claim for yourself what belongs to God. Learn this one lesson, this one great lesson, and your life can be blessed. Never underestimate the unspeakable misery that can befall your life and the lives of others by refusing to learn it. This was Pharaoh's horrific mistake. The Hebrews belonged to God. Likewise, your life belongs to God. Claim to be your own, and you're stealing yourself from God. That's what makes abortion such a horrible sin. A woman who commits an abortion is stealing two lives from the ownership of God, hers and her unborn babies. Killing the baby is a terrible sin, but that sin is actually the result of a previous sin, which is the theft of the life of the baby from the ownership of God. Second, do not confuse failed methods with failed ministry. Moses' initial attempt to help the Hebrews was misguided to say the least. It resulted in the death of an Egyptian soldier and Moses' own 40-year exile in the desert. However, that false start did not mean Moses was a false prophet. Have you had a false start? Did you start something, begin a ministry, and it went badly? Okay, go back to the point of your calling. Start again, right back there. Have you been sidelined like Moses was? Let God get you back on the field in his way and in his time. A bad beginning does not necessarily have to mean a bad ending. Third, and finally, the great lesson from Moses' conflict with Pharaoh, nobody sins in a vacuum. The contest between God and Pharaoh was personal. Both claimed to own the Hebrews. The issue was Pharaoh's stubborn narcissism, his personal rebellious sin, and his rejection of Moses' prophetic ministry. Pharaoh sinned personally, yet all of Egypt suffered. Remember this, no one sins in a vacuum. Spouses, families, churches, even whole nations suffer when the leaders sin. The drunk who drives is not in a vacuum. The corrupt politician may tell himself the bribe he takes hurts no one else, but it does. The false accusation made against a leader is not made in a vacuum. Reputations, careers, marriages, families get damaged. Sin hurts people other than just the sinner. The firstborn baby boy of an Egyptian mother wailed in the night as that baby died in her arms. But it was not her sin. It was Pharaoh's that killed it. No one sins in a vacuum. Well, I'm glad that you joined me for this bit sobering and intense episode of The Leader's Notebook. I hope that you'll get this book. I want you to have it. I believe it's important, and I believe that it's timely at this season in American life and wherever you are. In world history. Right now, the announcer will tell you how you can get it and get as many copies as you need. Until we meet again, I'm Mark Rutland, and this is the Leader's Notebook. To order a copy of Dr. Mark Rutland's new book of Kings and Prophets, please visit the store at DrMarkRutland.com. Enter promo code KINGS30 to receive 30% off of each book or call us toll free at 888-823-8772. Thank you for listening to The Leader's Notebook.